I was doing a, a bit of a count this week, and I, I realized that in the last eight years, we have moved house seven times. Now, how many of you enjoy moving house? No, you do. Honestly, I, it's one of the most exhausting, awful, horrendous things. I, I just, I hear it. And, and every time we do it, I find myself saying the same phrase. I didn't realize how much we had. You, you know, you get half a dozen boxes and you think I'll pack up in one night. And uh, three days later, you're back down buying 20 more boxes or, or you're down in Tesco trying to scrape up boxes because you never really understand how much you have accumulated over the years. And, uh, and, and that's kind of my theme this morning is you never know how much you've got. As Christians, I think a lot of us don't realize how much we've got. Through being united with Christ, through his death and resurrection, we don't know how much we've got. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, we don't know how much we have got. Through his provision and power in every part of our lives, we don't know how much we have got. And for us as a church, individually and together, I think we have no idea just how much God has ahead of us. And so we're going to look at this familiar passage and see just how much we have got. But there's a a stipulation, and that is that whatever we've got belongs to him. That if we hold on to it, that's all we've got. But if we'll release it and surrender it to him, he takes it and he multiplies it. And then he gives it out and he gives it back to us and we create this, this uh, lovely cycle of, of, just, uh, of, God, of God using us as a river, as a conduit to bless other people. So that's what we're going to think about today. Look at verse 30 with me of Mark chapter 6. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So they have been out, they have been teaching, they've been preaching, they've been healing. They've been doing all the stuff that up until now they've only seen Jesus doing. Before now they were spectators, now they're participators. And I think that's the two groups in any church. There's the spectators and the participators. There's the ones who watch everybody else and then there's the ones who actually do the stuff. And I want us to be a church that moves people from being spectators. I understand when you start coming to a church, you spectate. You check it out. You see what it's like. You want to find out, is this the sort of place I want to stay? Is this the sort of place I see myself uh, feeling comfortable at home in? Is this the sort of place I want to bring my family? And so you spectate for a while, and that's okay. But there has to come a point where you stop watching and start doing. And Jesus' disciples have been watching him do all the stuff until now. But now they've started doing. But there's a risk with that. Jesus sent them out without a guarantee. It's their first time without stabilizers on, if you like, on the bike. And they don't know if it's going to work. They don't know if they're going to fall off. But it works. It works. And they come back and they're absolutely buzzing. They're excited. They're thrilled. They they say, the demons actually left in your name. And and people were healed. and, and, And lives were changed. And... They're excited. And I want to say to you that the secret of the Christian life is actually doing what Jesus did. If you're bored in your Christian life, I would ask you honestly, when's the last time you shared your faith? When's the last time you prayed for a sick person? When's the last time you said to somebody, I just, I might be wrong here, but I sense that God might be saying this to you. Because the Christian life as a spectator sport is actually kind of boring. I'm being really honest. It's fine for six months, okay? When you've been doing it for years and you're just a spectator, quite honestly, 
you don't experience the fullness of life that Jesus talked about in 10, John 10.10. 10. Fullness of life comes through actually living it, through actually doing it. And so they're back and they're excited and they're thrilled about what's going on. But there's also this tension of John the Baptist has just been murdered for righteousness by, by Herod. And so they're tired, they're excited. Jesus is emotionally tired because of his cousin's death. And so he says to them, well, look at verse 30 and 31. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. That's important. Let me repeat that. So many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come away with me yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So many people were coming and going that they didn't have a chance to eat. So they're hungry. We need to remember that. That's important for the rest of the passage. These guys are hungry. They've been out ministering. They've been out doing the stuff. And they're hungry. They want food. And so Jesus says, look, let's go. Let's go to Baligomuk across the way here. There's a quiet place, deserted. You know, we can get a KFC. We can get a bargain bucket between us all. We can take some time out from the crowds. And so that's the plan. But look at what happens, verse 32 and verse 33. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So they're going across the lake to Baligomuk. And the people see them leaving. And they can sort of figure out where they're going. And so the people then run round the lake so that when the disciples and Jesus get to the other side, the crowd's already there waiting for them. I'm sure that they were thrilled. I'm sure Peter was just over the moon by this. You know what I mean? They were probably nearly a few years lost at that stage because it's easy to develop compassion fatigue. It's easy just to go, I just need space. That would have been my attitude. I would have been like, Jesus, can you not like get some Holy Ghost machine gun or something like this? Like they just are tired and they're hungry, which to me makes hangry, okay? And, and, and all these people are waiting with, there's always more need than you can meet. That's what I've discovered in ministry. There's always more need than any of us can meet. And we need self-care. We need to look after ourselves. I always say to people, heed the person on the airplane. If the plane's going down, put on your own oxygen mask first. Because if you're not okay, you can't help the child beside you. And we need self-care. But there's other times when we also need to go beyond just our own feelings and our own needs and our own weariness and realize that this is a moment when we need to stretch ourselves and have a little bit of compassion. And that's what happens here. I think it's amazing that crowds were drawn to Jesus. In an age and a day when we keep hearing about church decline and churches closing and all of this stuff, what was it about this man, this 30, 31, 32-year-old man, what was it about him? He was very ordinary looking. He didn't have a halo or a glow. There was something magnetic about Jesus, and I think it was just his presence. I think there was just something so pure and so lovely and so beautiful about the presence of Jesus that people just wanted to be around it. And that's what I want our church to be known for. Not a personality, not even a band, not even the music, not even the food, nothing. I want this church to be known as a place where the presence of Jesus dwells because that's what will attract people. Personalities come and go. People come and go. Bands, all of that stuff is peripheral. What is really central and at the heart and at the core of this community is the presence of Jesus because that's magnetic. You can't duplicate that or replicate that anywhere in the world. 
And I long for the day when there's a traffic jam on Northway and people say, Rushmere, and they go, no hope. That people are so drawn in this area by the presence of Jesus that instead of getting bags full of Debenham's clothes that they don't need, they come and get hearts full of the Holy Spirit that they do need. I long for a day when people in this area are so drawn to the presence of Jesus that there's queues of people wanting to get into the building and we're outside laying hands on them and we're seeing people saved and we're seeing people healed and we're seeing people set free. That is what the presence of Jesus does. That is the main attraction. I want God to be the main attraction in this church. Take the chairs away. Take the band away. Take the sound system away. Take it all away. Would you still come along if God was just the main attraction? I hope so. Because he is the center of this church. He is the source of this church. This is not a personality-driven church. This is not a people-driven church. This is a God-driven, Jesus-centered, spirit-filled community. And when it stays like that, people will be drawn. And so Jesus lands and he sees a large crowd. And he told them to clear away off because he was tired. No, that's not even in the message version. He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Even though he's tired. Even though he's hungry. He looks at these people. And he has compassion on them. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now we, and The Bible calls followers of Jesus sheep. And we sometimes think that's lovely. Isn't it? We're white and fluffy. And Sheep are dirty, smelly, and stupid, okay? That's kind of, when you read, like, if you were a sheep farmer, you would know this. They're dirty, smelly, and stupid, and they wander off very easily, and they get into bother. And so when you've got sheep without a shepherd, you've got lost, aimless, dirty, smelly sheep who don't know where to go and get fed, who wander off, and there's also wolves and other animals out there trying to destroy them. And so Jesus looks at these people and he sees them and his heart breaks for them because the religious leaders of their day aren't following God properly and so they are all over the place. Because when a leader's not following God, the people are all over the place. Don't we see that in the church around the world? When we have pastors and leaders who aren't following this book, it's no wonder we have congregations that are all over the place. And so these people are like sheep without a shepherd and that's kind of like our society today. They have no direction. They're aimless. They're purposeless. They get up on a Monday morning. They go to work. They come home. They, 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 they have their dinner. They watch Love Island. They go to bed. They get up the next morning. They do the same thing. And it's wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. And then they live for the weekend. They go out and get hammered. They get up on a Sunday morning. They've got a headache. They recover from Monday and they do it all again. That is our culture. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep need a shepherd. And so Jesus has compassion on them. Bishop Ken Clark said something a few years ago. He said, it's not that people today aren't open. He says, I've never seen people so open to the gospel. The problem is they're so desperate that they're open to anything. That's our culture today. They're open to all this new age spirituality and all this religious stuff and and all this other stuff. And what they're really starving for is Jesus. And we have a choice as a church. We can stand and point the finger and condemn and tell them they're wrong. And that's what much of the church has done for years. Or we can say, actually, we'll shepherd you. We'll we'll put our arms around you. We'll clean you up because you're stinky. 
We, we, we'll lead you to green pastures because you need fed. We will have compassion on you because Jesus has compassion on you. Verse 35 and 36. By this time it was late in the day. So the disciples came to Jesus. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I want you to notice something here. When I'm reading passages like this, I kind of try to get inside them. Who did we find out at the start was hungry? The disciples. Nowhere in this passage does it say the people are hungry. But the disciples come to Jesus and say the people are hungry. I can imagine Jesus is preaching, okay? So let's say he starts preaching at 11 a.m. And he's talking and it's 12 noon and the disciples, Peter's going, okay, we'll wrap up now probably. One o'clock comes still. You think I'm long-winded. He keeps going. Two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock. By this time, the guys are getting really antsy. Even John, who's a bit soft, you know, like the land, Jesus' breast and, and sort of be the disciple Jesus loved. He's even starting to get a bit annoyed. And so the disciples call a bit of a, a, a conference together and they say, what's going on, guys? We're starving. Like we were hungry before this. What are we going to do? One of them looks at the other one and goes, well, I know, I know. Why don't we say that the people are hungry? Because Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned about us because he knew we were hungry five hours ago. So why why don't one of us, Peter, why don't one of us go to Jesus and tell him, because he seems to really care about people, go and tell him that the people are hungry. Peter, away you go. So Peter walks up and there's all these crowds and Jesus, Jesus is talking. Jesus, Jesus! What is it, Peter? I was just back there. I was, you, see, you see back there where the boys are? I was back there and there was a couple of families I was chatting to. And, uh, and they were just telling me that they're really hungry, especially the kids. The wee kids are starving. I mean, look at them. And, uh, and, and so you might, you might, Jesus, you might want to think, now, I, I mean, not me, I'm really enjoying this 44... Uh, part sermon series that you're preaching in one day. I mean, I could listen to this all night. This is quality stuff, Jesus. So don't, don't get me wrong. This isn't me. But, but there's a couple of families back there, Jesus. And they were just saying they were hungry. So, so why don't you send us all home? So they, just so they can go and get something to eat. You know, I remember Morris Elliott, when I went to Lurgan as his cure, taught me this. He said, uh, when somebody comes up to you and says, everybody's saying... It normally means they have thought it and somebody else has supported them. <laughs> and so Morris said, you know when some, if somebody comes up to you, I actually did this once with him early on, and then I learned my lesson the first time. I said, everybody's saying, and he said, who? And it was two people, and uh, two cousins, who had obviously just been disgruntled about something. And, uh, and that's kind of what's going on here. The disciples don't want to say that they're hungry, so they're like, you know, everybody back there is saying they're really hungry, Jesus. Uh, and... Uh, And Jesus looks at him and goes, okay, you feed them. Peter's like, what? Sorry, sorry, Jesus, sorry. There's a lot of people around you here. What did you say? You feed them. Did you talk to Jesus? Yeah, talk to Jesus. Is he going to get rid of everyone? No. What did he say to you? He told us to feed them. Oh. Oh. There's something wrong here. What is going on here? 
What is going on? You see, what Jesus is trying to do is to teach them something. It actually says that in John's gospel, that Jesus was testing them in this, when he said this. He was testing them. See, these guys have just been out and they've seen the supernatural power of God at work. They've seen miracles, they've seen healings, they've seen deliverances. They've seen God's power supernaturally manifest through their lives. And yet they come against another problem and immediately they forget about what's happened back there. And Jesus is trying to teach them that the same supernatural power, the same resources, the same provision that was available a few days ago when they were out on their own is available for them today. Stephen Furtick said this, the key to confidence is making a connection between your present battle and your previous victory. Let me repeat that. The key to confidence is making a connection between your present battle and your previous victory. In other words, when you're facing a problem here, when you're facing an opposition or a struggle or, or, or something, a lack in your life or a bell or whatever it is, the key to facing that head on is to remember the last time you faced that and remember that God brought you through it. Just like David did with the lion and the bear when he came up against Goliath. That you reach back, and I've said this before, you reach back into your past and you pull God's faithfulness into your present and that gives you courage and faith to face the future. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here, but they haven't got it. They haven't learned that the same resources that were available just a few days ago are still available for them now. Jesus is trying to get them to think beyond their human limitations. We need to grasp that. That when God wants to do something here on earth, He wants to do it through us. There are things that we can't do and there's things that we can do. But very often our prayers are asking God to do things that we can do. And when my little boy Elijah will come to me very often, he'll say, Daddy, will you put my shoes on? I'll go, no. Because if you can, I won't. Daddy, will you put my jumper on? No. Because if you can, I won't. Daddy, will you make my dinner? No. Because if no, I was an exaggeration in that last one. I was just trying to keep your attention. But, but my point as a father is, I don't want him to become lazy. I want him to do what he can do so that I can do what he can't do. And so many of us pray, God, would you just, would you just speak to that family next door? And God's going, when's the last time you spoke to them over the hedge? Lord, would you just provide for that, that, that person in work who, who doesn't have enough to pay their bills this month? And God's going, why don't you actually just take out 50 quid and give it to them? Sometimes we're the answer to our own prayers. You see, God takes our natural and adds, adds his super to it and makes it supernatural. He takes our ordinary and adds his extra to make it extraordinary. And if you can, he won't. It's the bit where you can't that he steps in. And Jesus here is trying to get the disciples to understand that they've reached a place where they don't have to be so spectatory, dependent on him, but that they are actually empowered and equipped to do the stuff themselves. 
you know, three years ago at this time, we were in the States on our sabbatical. And it had been, the whole thing had been paid for by an American businessman privately for us. And I remember towards the end of our time, we were down in San Diego and we were having lunch with him. And Becky and I looked at him and we said, Brian, thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much for paying for the sabbatical. We, we needed it so badly. And Brian said, you know what, it's all God's money. It's, you know, don't worry about it. It's all, it all came from him. And I remember looking across the table at that restaurant at Brian and saying, you're right, Brian. God did give you the ability to make wealth. And God has blessed you in your business. But no money fell out of the sky. You reached into your pocket, you took out your checkbook and you wrote us a check. And so yes, God is the source of it all but it came through your hand. And I think we need to grasp that, that he is the source. It all comes from him, but it comes through our hands. He gives it to us, and we release it. God releases his resources through his people as we listen to the prompting of his spirit. He'll say to you, pray for that person. Give to that person. Go and talk to them. Give them a call. Drop them a text. Share my love with them. And you say, God, would you do something? God says, no, why don't you just do it? I have important equipped you to do something. So stop asking me to do things that I've already given you the power and ability to do. So Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Verse 37, they said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much in bread and give it to them to eat? I think this must have been the accountant in the group. And in the first service, I got in trouble with Andrew. It is not somebody like Andrew. But, but this must have been the accountant, you know. You give them something to eat, and he gets his pencil out and his calculator, and he geeks out, and he's like, that would actually take 180 days of wages. And they're just not getting it. But you know what? Most people, when they're faced with a... With a, with a an obstacle or a problem, immediately think of what they lack. Think of what they don't have. Think of what they're missing. The glass is half empty. A lot of us are much better at thinking of the reasons why something can't be done than believing that in God it can be done. So we're a church and we're thinking, you know what? As I said last week, in two years we're probably going to need a new building. And I'm sure some of us can sit here and think, well, we'll never raise that. Never raise a quarter of a million in two years. Never raise money. Or three years, you know, when would you stay here? When would you stay the size we are? You know, we're doing fine. I like it here. I know everybody in this service. Anyway. When would you stay where we are? What's all this stupid talk about anyway? I, I, I will never do it. I, 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 like we've all been, like we can always think of reasons why we can't give. We can always think of reasons why we can't serve. We can always think of the negative. We, it's just where we go. Or we can think, you know what? Through Christ, in God, all things are possible. And I would go even further and I'd say, when you're doing what God wants you to do, not only are they possible, they're probable. They're probable. When you're doing what God has called you to do, when your heart is to have a God-centered community in this place where people are rich with the gospel, I think it's more than possible. I think it's probable. And so look at what Jesus says to them. And that's the first thing he always asks us. Verse 38. What do you have? What do you have? How many loaves do you have? 
He asked, go and see. What do you have? That's where Jesus always starts. He doesn't start with what you'd like to have. He starts with what you have. Because if you use what you have, then you're likely to get what you need. We see that through scripture. Look at the Old Testament. Remember the the widow whose husband is dead? Comes to Elisha and she says, my two sons are about to be carried off as slaves because I'm in debt. And and, And Elisha says to her, what do you have? She says, I've got nothing but a little jar of oil. Remember Moses, God calls him to go and deliver the people from Egypt. And God says to him, what is in your hand? Just a stick. God always starts with what you've got, even if it doesn't look like enough. And as you're willing to give and surrender to him what you've got, he takes it and he makes it into something so much greater than it is without him. He always starts with what you've got. The miracle always begins with what you have. The answer to your prayer, at least part of it, is always somewhere in your life. The ingredients for the miracle are always in our midst. But I can't multiply, or God can't multiply what I don't recognize. If I don't realize the little that I have, I won't give it to him and he won't multiply it. And a lot of us have a scarcity mentality. A lot of us can think of lots of reasons why God can't use us. I'm too ordinary. I'm too common. I'm not rich enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not confident enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. What if they ask me a question? And yet Jesus is able to take the little bit of what we have and to do incredible things with it. And so in verse 38 it says, when they found out, they said five, five loaves. And when you hear five loaves, guys, I don't want you to think of five hovis loaves, okay? Like, like they didn't come back with five big loaves. We're talking about little bits of bread here, little rolls, little bops, okay? And two fish. They do a stock take. And it says there were 5,000 men. In that culture, they counted people by families. And so if there were 5,000 men, they estimate there were at least 20,000 people here. And they've got five bits of bread and two fish. Now, I'd have been too, I don't even know why they even mentioned it. You have 20,000 people and you've got five bits of bread and two fish. Why even bother mentioning it? I'd be too embarrassed. I'd just say we've got nothing. Verses 39 to 41. Then Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. I love that. That's the only gospel where it tells us that the grass was green. Just those little details always amuse me. Somebody's gar- somebody was obviously very proud of their garden. Um, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave it to the disciples to distribute to all the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. A few things I want you to see. First thing he does, he sits them down in groups of fifties and hundreds. Like if I'm the disciples at this point, I'm really annoyed. Have you ever tried to organize people? Like 20,000 people into groups of 50s and 100s. Like, have you ever tried that? Like, you can imagine somebody like George out of here going, what's it in that group? You know what I mean? I don't like that group. He's out there cooking, I think, so I can say whatever I want. First service and you've got it beaten. But you can imagine. And you're getting more and more hungry and you're going, 36, 37, 38, 30, and somebody, and you're, I've lost count again. One, two, three, and they're getting more. But here, why, why organize them into groups? The reason I think is this, to show that structure and planning can go along with the supernatural and the miraculous. 
You see, churches like us, Pentecostal, charismatic, spirit-filled, whatever you believe, we tend to think that structure and planning are unspiritual. It's all spontaneous. It's all just led by the Spirit. Jesus said structure and supernatural can go together. Planning and power can go together. He organizes things into structures because the structures sustain the supernatural. The, 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 the planning prepares for the provision. I've heard some people come along to me and they'll say something like, you know, my pastor doesn't prepare his sermons. He just gets up and lets the spirit lead. And I've listened to those pastors and I can tell you they do that. And I think, you know, the Lord can use your preparation as well. Why don't you spend 10 to 20 hours preparing and maybe you'll feed your people a little bit better. Somehow we somehow think it's more spiritual just to let the spirit, and we want the spirit to move, we want to give, but do you know what the spirit can move with instructors and preparation? Some people are so into spontaneity that they think anything planned can't have the Holy Spirit involved. God loves to take structures and fill them with the supernatural power. We see that in the temple in the Old Testament. The people built the temple according to certain specifications and then God filled it. We create the space and he fills it. Our planning and his power go hand in hand. And what does he do next? He looks to heaven. The Bible says he looked to heaven. In other words, he realized that he was going to need heaven's help here. Very often when we face problems, we look around us or we look within and we don't find any solution. Why don't we start looking to heaven? And then what does he do? He gives thanks for the bread. He blesses it. He gives thanks for something that isn't enough. In his hands are five little loaves and two little fish, and he gives thanks for them. I find it easy to give thanks for what is enough. I find it hard to give thanks for what isn't enough. And yet unless I can give thanks for what I have, even if it's not enough, I don't think I will see God's provision to make it enough. And some of you in your lives right now, you're so aware of what you lack, what you don't have, where you're deficient, where you feel defective. Why don't you give thanks for what you do have? It's something God's teaching me. God is challenging me about this at the minute. Because I'm always very aware of what I lack and what I miss and what I need. and And God is saying, why don't you just start every day by spending 10 minutes giving thanks for what you have? Thank me for your wife. Thank me for your family. Thank me for your church. Thank me for your car. Thank me for your home. Thank me for your help. Thank you for the, your, your little boy's school. Thank me for your, all the stuff I've given you. And it's amazing what that's going to start to do to you. Even if it's not enough, give thanks for it. Because gratitude is a big deal to God. So he gives thanks and then he breaks it. Where was the miracle? Where was it multiplied? That's what I've been trying to figure out as I've been studying this passage this week. Okay. So when it's in Jesus' hands, what is it? It's five loaves and two fish. Then he blesses it. How much is in his hands after he blesses it? I don't think there were 500 loaves suddenly in his hands. I think there were still five loaves and two fish. But the first step to multiplication of anything in our lives is to have God's blessing on it. 
Imagine if the disciples had got the five loaves and two fish from the wee boy and just started to give it out themselves. I don't think it would have went very far. But once they give it to Jesus and he blesses it, something shifts. And in my own life and as a church, we want God to bless all that we are, all that we do, all that we have. And the first step to having God's blessing is to give it to him. To say, God, this is all yours. I want God to bless this church. I want God to bless my family. I want God to bless my finances. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyone who doesn't want God's blessing in their life, I don't know why you wouldn't. But he will only bless that which you give to him. So that's the first step. It's to get his blessing because nothing can be multiplied if you hold on to it yourself. And then he breaks it. He breaks it. And it amazes me, and this is a whole sermon that I might teach in itself, that throughout the scripture, especially the New Testament, it says Jesus blessed it and he broke it. He blessed it and he broke it. He blessed it and he broke it. Very often in our lives, the blessing and the breaking go together. And they seem like two contradictory things because we put blessing over here and we put breaking over here. And yet God would say to us, you don't understand that in the sum of the most broken moments of your life, I was doing the greatest blessing. Remember that boyfriend or girlfriend who dumped you and broke your heart when you were 16 and you, you, you thought you would never get over it? They broke your heart. But 20 years later, you look back at them. Maybe you bump into them and pour it down and you think, that was a blessing. Yeah, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Remember that time when you were married and you didn't have two pea to rub together? And at the time you were broke, you were skint. And now you've you've got a wee bit more, but I, I guarantee some of you look back at that time as being the happiest time of your marriage. Because you made do with what you had. You scraped by. You know, a can of beans lasted four nights. You know, you were broke, but you were blessed. Some of you have been through really hard times that have broken your heart. Maybe you've lost somebody dear to you. Maybe you've been through a divorce. Maybe you've been through something else. But maybe you've lain in a hospital bed for three months looking at the ceiling. But many of you, and there's people in this room have told me that in those places they've found the blessing of God. That in the midst of their deepest brokenness, they've found the greatest blessing. Because God always, or very often, should I say, does his greatest blessing in our deepest brokenness. I just, I, find, I just find that little phrase that we see throughout scripture, he blessed and broke it, that they go together. The blessing and the breaking very often go together. I know that in my own life, that I've been through some broken periods in my own life. And honestly, I would rather not have went through them, but I look back now and I wouldn't probably change them because I discovered God's blessing in my brokenness. God's blessing meets you in your brokenness. So he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it. Jesus didn't personally go around feeding everybody. He gave it to the disciples. So where did the miracle take place? I think the miracle took place as the disciples gave out the food. The miracle wasn't at the hands of Jesus. Jesus didn't go around 20,000 people giving out food. The miracle was at the hands of the disciples. 
Obviously, he was the source. He blessed it. Without his blessing, it wouldn't have happened. But as they took what he had blessed and distributed it, remember, these guys are hungry. It would have been very easy for them to slink off in the corner and say, let's see what we can do with this ourselves. Five loaves, two fish. Make a few fish finger buddies here. But they took what they had and they gave it. And I can imagine them going along. Wee bit of bread. Wee bit of bread. Wee bit of bread. Here, boy, calm down. Seriously. Oh, don't be a garb. I mean, have you looked at like, Seriously. Wee bit of bread. Wee bit of bread. Wee bit of bread. Get 50. Another 100. Wee bit of bread. And they keep looking down going, there's still the same amount in this basket. Wee bit of bread. Wee bit of bread. Wee bit of bread. Another 50. Still the same amount in the basket. And they keep giving what they've got. And as they give what they've got, it's multiplied. The disciples were the connection between Jesus and the crowd. We are the connection between Jesus and the crowd. Between the world out there that doesn't know Jesus, we are the connection. God blesses us, he provides for us, we give, and he multiplies it. And I love how God has blessed us and I I believe he'll continue because we give what we get. We tithe at least 10% of every penny that comes into this church. Every penny you give, even today on the gift day, we used to support an orphanage and a school in Uganda. Love for Life, one of our local charities, we give £200 every month to. Youth for Christ in the area, Aspire, uh, Lynx Counseling Service, Crown Jesus, there, are so, uh, there was a church in Lisbon opening a new building. We were able to give them £1,000 recently. We take what you give us and we want to bless our community with it. And I believe as long as we continue to do that, God's going to keep blessing us. Because God's will for us is not that we would be a reservoir but a river. Not that we hold on to it all, but that we would be channels and conduits of his provision. Last two verses, and then we're going to watch a video in a second. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. They all ate and were satisfied. I love that. God never leaves us hungry. He satisfies us. And not just some of them, but all of them. And it says they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Why does it tell us that? How many disciples were there? Twelve. They were hungry. They get this little bit of food and they give what they've got. And I'm sure as their tummies are rumbling, as they're walking around these crowds, they're thinking, I'm starving. I don't want to give this away. I need this more than they do. I, I, I haven't eaten in longer than they, but they still gave it away. And at the end of it, every one of them gets a basket of food. Every one of them gets a doggy bag. They all got a basket each at the end. And I think the principle is simply this, that if you will give, God will make sure you have enough. If you will give, even if you could hold on to it, even out of your lack, even out of... What you feel you need for yourself, God will provide for your needs. Because our God is a God of more 
than enough. And two things really quickly. Actually, just one. We'll finish with this one. Where did the food come from? A little boy. A little boy. Now, out of 20,000 people, do you expect me to believe that nobody else had food there that day? Do you ever think about that? That 19,999 people went out for the day without food, but one wee boy brought a packed lunch? Like, that's negligent parenting right there. Do you ever think about that? Like, we read these stories and we... You know what I think? I think one of two things happened. I think people had lunch... And they said, I'm keeping it for myself. I'm hungry. Or they looked at what they had and they looked at the crowd and went, my wee bit won't make a difference anyway, so what's the point? But only one wee boy was naive enough. And that's why we're talking about him 2,000 years later, to give what he had. Here's the other thing. Who were counted in those days? How many people were there? 5,000 men. Who was counted out? The women and children the miracle came through somebody who wasn't even counted. The one who we counted out was the one who was the source of the miracle. And often the greatest miracles in our lives won't come through rich people, won't come through famous people, they'll come through the people that we would have counted out. The ordinary people. The little ones. The insignificant ones. Maybe you are that little insignificant one today. And maybe today God wants to do a miracle through you. I know what it feels like to be counted out. I've counted myself out so many times. I'm sure you have too. And yet God counts in those we count out. Maybe he counts them in just because we count them out. Because he loves to take the weak and foolish things to shame the strong. So I'm just going to invite you to watch a video. It'll keep your attention. I promise you. I only found it this morning. I was watching it as I was getting ready this morning and I thought, I really would love our our people to see this at the end. It's the best way to finish. It'll keep your attention, but as you're watching it, can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to start really thinking about how much you're going to give? I know some of you are already here with checks written for a gift day. On your seat, you will have an envelope. You'll also have a bit of paper. And if you haven't come prepared to give, you can do so over the next week. Take one of these generous cards, and you can do that online. Just uh, put your name and gift day on it as the reference. But as you watch this, can I ask you to start getting prepared to give? The band are going to come up after that. They're going to play quietly. We're going to lift our offering without any noise or singing, and then we're going to sing our last song. Let's watch the video, Ma. And so for me, I said, well, Lord, how does that work out? He said, well, when someone asks you to come speak, they say, what are your financial requirements for coming? And you say, pay our expenses and give us an offering. And some of my friends would actually say, pay, us, or pay our expenses, give, me, give us an offering. And the offering has to be a minimum of. I never even said that. I just said, whatever, just pay our expenses and give us an offering. Here's what the Lord said to me. He said, from now on, you say, I have no financial requirements for coming. By the way, this was about 30 years ago, and I still do that to this day. I have no financial requirements coming. And the Lord said to me, I want to teach you who your provider is. That it's not how you arrange things, it's me. 
Now, again, other people, you can do things differently. Don't put this on, on you. Let the Lord speak to you what he wants you. So this guy calls me. I will never forget. First guy calls and says, uh, Robert, can you come and speak? I said, yes. We worked out a day. He said, what are your financial requirements for coming? I said, I have no financial requirements for coming. And I remember he said, well, that's good because I don't even think we can pay your gas. Now, he didn't say pay your expenses. He said pay your gas. Let me tell you why that's important. We get in that $750 car. We start driving. It was to Oklahoma. We start driving to Oklahoma. I stopped to fill the car up with gas. I went in to pay for it, and the lady said to me, it's taken care of. I said, what do you mean it's taken care of? She said, because when you pulled in, God told me that I was to fill your car up with gas. And I went out, and I got in the car, and I said, Lord, I sure like doing it better your way than my way. And here's the third thing the Lord said to me, give. So he said, get out of debt, don't manipulate, give. Now, I have to tell you what happened. Uh, I, I said to the Lord, uh, I said, Lord, um, I do give, I tithe. Now, I, please don't get offended by this. This is just the, what I, the impression that I got in my spirit when I said that. I said, Lord, um, I do give, I tithe. I felt like the Lord went, <laughs> I mean, that really, I, I mean, I kind of felt like it was like, <laughs> idiot. You know, I mean, that's what I felt. And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? Lord, I do. I give 10%. He said, you don't give 10%. You return 10%. He said, the 10% is mine. And when you read the language in the Bible, if you don't return it, then you've stolen it. That's the language. I can show it to you in uh, uh, Joshua and in Malachi. Robbed and stolen. Those are the two words God uses. He used it. So I said, well, Lord, what do you mean give? He said, I mean give over and above the tithe. That's when you give. And I asked him three very important questions. I said, well, Lord, how will I know when to give? How will I know where to give? And how will I know how much to give? Aren't those important questions? Listen to his very simple answer. Here's what he said. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. My people hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And so I said, okay, Lord. So at not long after that, I go to speak at the church. Now, you have to remember, the only salary that Debbie and I received was when I would go to speak in the church and if they would give us an offering. And I said, you don't have to give us anything. So I go to speak for this church, and it's the only speaking engagement I have for the whole month. I only have one engagement that whole month, all right? And it's at a church with about 60 people in attendance. And I go and I speak at that church and I said, I have no requirements coming. The pastor gets up afterwards. He tells the whole church that. He said, he has, he has no financial requirements coming. I want us to give an offering. And I want us to give a, a good offering. So they count it. And then they bring a check to the pastor. And we're standing like right here at the front. And the pastor brings me this check. And he says, look at this. Look at this. And he said, we've never given this much. And he was so excited to be able to do that. And I looked down at the amount. And the amount was, a, was the exact amount of our monthly budget. Exactly. And it had dollars and cents on it. And you have to remember, at that time, we also had an office and we had an, uh, an employee, a person that helped me to set up meetings. Because some of the meetings I did were large meetings and were gathered churches together and things like that. And so I looked down and I remember thinking, this is my only meeting for the whole month. You told me not to ask for anything and God, you are so faithful. And while I'm looking at that check and thinking how faithful God is, I kind of glance up and I look over the shoulder of this pastor that's talking to me. And I see at the back of the church a missionary that had just spoken right before I spoke, shared a report, and this voice said to me, give him the offering. 
And I remember exactly what I thought. I rebuke you, Satan. <laughs> that's, that's not God. That's not God. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That is not God. I remember, this it's funny, I know, but I remember even saying, that's not you. That's not you. I know you. that's not you. You would not do that, God. And the Lord said, give him the offering. The whole offering. Give him the offering. And I remember saying to the Lord, again, you just have to know that I talk to the Lord funny and he talks to me funny. I remember I said to the Lord, Lord, you're not thinking clearly. This is the exact amount of our budget. We have no other meetings this month. You know, I, I preached a good message, and you got all pumped up, and you want to give to a missionary now, Lord. But this is, this is, you provided this for us. And the Lord said, give him the offering. Give him the offering. And then I remember the Lord said to me, I told you that I would tell you when to give and where to give and how much to give. And I'm telling you to give right now to that missionary the whole amount. And so the sanctuary was clearing out by now, and I endorsed the check when no one was looking, folded it in half, and I went to the missionary and said, I'm going to give you something, but don't look at it until after you leave, because it was a very large amount. And I said, and um, don't ever tell anyone I did this, because I didn't want to manipulate in any way. I, I have, I believe now I'm supposed to share these testimonies to help other people, but back then I didn't share any of these things that I was doing. So I gave him this offering. And uh, he, he, you know, said thank you. And then Debbie and I walked outside, and there were some couples standing in the parking lot. And one of the couples said, hey, we're going to go get some pizza. Do you all want to go? And we said, yeah, you know, because we were broke, you know. And so, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, sure. We love going to eat pizza. So we go eat pizza with them, and there are six couples total. So Debbie and I and five other couples. The six guys sat on, if you see this in your mind, sat on one end of the table. The six girls sat on the other end of the table. Debbie's all the way at the end, on that end. I'm at this end, all right? These four guys started talking about something. They got in some conversation about football or something, you know. And then this guy across from me that I had met one time before, just once. I just met him one time. He just leans across the table like this, you know. And so I kind of lean across. I don't know what he's going to say. And he said to me, how much was the love offering? Just like that. And again, because I'm a numbers person, I knew exactly what it was. And so I told him the number. And remember, it was an offering, not an honorarium. An honorarium is with zeros. It's a round amount, like 250 or $500 or something like that. This was an offering that had, you know, dollars and cents on it. So I told him how much it was. And then this guy says to me, where's the check? Like that. And, and I know you're supposed to tell the truth, but I got kind of flustered. I didn't know what to say, and I didn't know why this guy was questioning me. And so I just heard myself say, Debbie has it. <laughs> and so he says to me, go get it. I want to see it. So I said, Okay. So I get up, and I walk down where Debbie is, and I lean down to her, and I said, how's your pizza? Is it good? Okay, good. You know, there's nothing else to say. There's no check. And so I go back, and again, I know you're supposed to tell the truth, but I don't know why is this guy asking me this, and why is he questioning me? And I didn't want to say, in my heart, I didn't want to brag. I didn't want to say, we gave it to a missionary, and it's the only meeting we have this month. And I didn't want to say that. And so I just heard myself again. I said... It's in the car. 
And he said, it's not in the car. So I said, where is it? <laughs> I mean, you know so much, pal. I, I just, I started getting frustrated. Why is this guy grilling me like this? What is, what's going on here? And this guy said to me, who, by the way, is now a member of our church and has verified this, this testimony. This guy said to me, you gave it away, didn't you? I said, yes. I said, how do you know that? I'd only met him one time before. I said, how do you know that? He said, because God told me. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a check that he had written before he came to the service that night. And I found out later, which I didn't even know. He didn't even attend that church. He just heard I was speaking and God told him, go give him this check. So he writes a check out before he comes. He holds this check out that's made out to our ministry and he holds it up like this. Now listen to me, before God in heaven, and this man has verified this, it was exactly 10 times the amount of the check that I just getting right down to the penny. Exactly. He said, here. And he's holding the top of it. And I reached out and I took the bottom of it, but he wouldn't let it go. <laughs> and I, I, I realized he, he wants to tell me something. He wants to say something. I now know he wanted to impart something. You do know there's a gift of giving in the body press. There's a gift of giving. That's a spiritual gift. So I'm holding the bottom. He's holding the top. He looked right across the top of the check, right into my eyes, and he said, God's about to teach you about giving so you can teach the body of Christ. And he let the check go. Here's what came into my mind when he let that check go. I, here's what I thought. This is God's money. This is not my money. This is God's money. All of it from now on is God's money. By God's grace, I have had that thought with every check that I've received since then. 